two weeks ago, we left off in 1 Samuel at the end of chapter 10 with some worthless fellows asking a question. And the question was, how can this man, Saul, save us? How can Saul save us? Samuel had publicly proclaimed Saul as the first king of Israel at Mizpah, where all Israel had gathered. Everyone knew that the Lord had chosen Saul since he was made known to this gathering through the Old Testament means of knowing God's will by casting lots. Everyone also knew that their demand for a king had been granted, even though Samuel had warned them about what having a king would mean for everyone. And if anyone had been paying attention, really close attention, to their holy scriptures, they would have also known that the royal scepter of a future king would come through Judah, not through the tribe of Benjamin, which was Saul's tribe. Benjamin committed one of the most despicable crimes in the whole Old Testament that actually caused a civil war. And so we see in the blessings of the father, Jacob, upon his sons earlier, at the end of, of course, earlier, at the end of Jacob's life, that he predicted that the great empire of David and the greater kingdom of Christ would come through Judah. And Benjamin uh, had a far less uh, important blessing, if you could call it that. So... Here we are, and the people should have recognized that at at some point. Saul was physically imposing. He was taller than everyone else with the looks of a king to go along with it. But we've already seen that he was lacking the most important uh, quality, knowing God. So with the king that they demanded and the seeds of internal dissension already growing, now Israel is faced with this huge external threat from the neighboring Ammonites. So what is Saul's mission here, then, as the new king? Well, it's really just two main things. First, to heal the internal dissension and somehow uniting the tribes of Israel And second, to deliver a decisive military victory over the external threat from Nahash the Ammonite. Interestingly, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls includes additional information that appears right before verse 1 of chapter 11 here. Stating that Nahash had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites grievously gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. But 7,000 men had escaped from the Ammonites and entered the city of Jabesh-Gilead. And that's right before verse 1 here of chapter 11. 
The famous first century historian that I'm sure most of you have heard of, named Josephus, alludes to the Dead Sea Scroll information in his works, saying that Nahash had reduced the Transjordan Israelite cities to slavery. The point seems clear. Nahash the Ammonite had reduced what was east of the Jordan to uh, cities that were on terror alert. They had been terrorized repeatedly and even been conquered and enslaved in some cases. So this was a very, very serious situation. If you were able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 11 from the English Standard Version. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, And Saul said, what's wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow... By the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel 
rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Quick geography lesson so you can see what's going on and where. There's a scale right here. Can't probably see it very well, but 50 kilometers is about 30 miles. First off, we heard about Mizpah. And that city is right above Jerusalem, right there. We also heard about the Ammonites, who resided southeast or on the east side of the Jordan River. These are two of the tribes of Israel, Reuben and Gad, the Gadites and the Reubenites. What else can we see? Jabesh Gilead is on the east side of the Jordan, about 30 miles from Gilgal, which is right here. This is the city where Saul gathered the people before they crossed over to attack and rescue this town. And that's depicted by this yellow line right there. Well, first we see in our story the worldly arrogance of Nahash the Ammonite. The men of Jabesh-Gilead were so fearful of this man that they sought to make a treaty with him and serve him. In verse 2, we see Nahash's terms. A treaty meant that every Israelite man would lose his right eye. This means that these men would be worthless as soldiers. Because everyone who has a little son or a grandson knows that the shield goes on this arm... And the right eye sees around the shield, which means this guy won't last long in any battle. So he's worthless as a soldier. Well, that's the point, isn't it? Not even close. It is important. But the close, um, the, real, the real point here is what we're, we hear in our text. We see that Nahash wants every opportunity. He uses everything that happens in order to shame Israel. At the end of verse 2, we see that his motivation was very, very simple. Simple, to disgrace and shame Israel. Many, I think most, most historians and biblical scholars think that this right, right here, this event, was the lowest absolute point in Israel's pre-exile history. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite or respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we'll give ourselves up to you. How does that hit you? Many wonder how the Israelites could even ask a question like this. And then, why would Nahash even consider actually allowing it? 
But again, this just shows how arrogant and how consumed by his hatred Nahash was. Why did the Ammonites hate the Israelites so much and vice versa? Again, an Old Testament story that's really hard to hear. The Ammonites were Israel's cousins by incest. They were descended from the illicit union between a drunken lot, Abraham's nephew, and one of his daughters after they fled the destruction of Sodom. Needless to say, the Israelites did not hold the Ammonites in high regard, the descendants of that union. And the feeling was mutual. In the Exodus, the Ammonites refused to offer provisions to the Israelites and then developed an ongoing tradition of harassing them whenever possible. So this thing was never settled. It was just growing over and over and over again as they figured out ways to destroy each other. Do not miss the point here that Nahash depicts or is a type of the hatred that the world has for God's people in every generation. John 15, 19, If you were of the world, Jesus says, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So as we look at this story and we think about why all this happened, um, it will really help if you picture Nahash as a type of the power of evil in the world as we think about it. In verses 4 through 13, we see God's way of doing things. Remember the question from the end of chapter 10 again, how can this man Saul save us? And why this is so remarkable is because in this passage right here, we see Saul actually leading as a king like he's supposed to. Saul hears the very bad news of the Ammonite invasion on Jabesh-Gilead, and he, and he hears Nahash's terms, and he sees all these people and hears them weeping from his hometown, and his anger was greatly kindled. He figured out a very unique and effective way of mustering the people into action, didn't he? He cuts up a yoke of oxen, sends the pieces throughout the land, and says, if you don't come out, your oxen, the same thing's going to happen to them. And then we read that 330,000 people total responded. Now that is a textual issue because the same word for thousand is also used for a company of soldiers that is about 50 men, which is a huge difference in numbers, but it's still military possibility. So either way, um, most texts have the, the actual numbers here, 300,000 guys from the north and 30,000 from Judah. This news reached the men then of Jabesh Gilead. 
And what did they do? They were glad. If there ever was an understatement in the Bible, I think this was it. But they knew that they still had to pull this off because if Nahash acted fast, they were still going to have the same thing happen until all the Israelites could get up there. Did you see that? That's about from all over, everywhere, to come here, to go there. Um, By the way, Saul's town is Gibeah, which is right there. So he was down close to Jerusalem, too. That's in the land of the tribe of Benjamin. So they disguised their hope. Said, hey, tomorrow, if we haven't heard anything, we'll, we'll give in to you. We'll serve you. We'll let our right eyes get gouged out. Meanwhile, the Israelite force mustered, got there, and attacked in three lines of battle. And it says in the morning watch, which is before dawn. And this was the last thing the Ammonites expected. They were kind of lulled to sleep probably by this whole thing. And of course, it is God that's behind it. They were completely routed, and those who survived were scattered. We read in our text in verse 11, so that no two of them were left together. That's a pretty decisive battle win. Oh, but I left out the most important and vital part of these events, really, didn't I? What's the most important verse in this whole section? It's verse 6. How can this man Saul save us? And here we see the answer. Saul's not going to. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will lead you to victory. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And that's the point of this passage. Notice that this verse is at the very center of this chapter. This is what God wants us to know and wants us to learn. Israel's deliverance here did not come because Israel now had a king. This is the very first lesson that God gives his people with a new king. But because the king had God's spirit equipping him to carry out his mission, that's the lesson. By the way, if you know your history and have read the Old Testament even just once, you you know that they never really got this. Sometimes it was close. Sometimes it was really far away, though. The truly vital role is played by the Holy Spirit in equipping such leadership and animating the people in godly obedience. And we see that right here. Our passage today is simply Christ's Old Testament way of saying something. This is the Old Testament way of saying what Jesus said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Another Old Testament passage, Zechariah 4.6, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Same message, both testaments, but there's some great examples that we see in the historical record here. The church today cannot afford to miss this point. 
Whenever God's people resort to worldly stratagems, they begin to fail in power. But whenever God's Spirit comes to believers, we're fortified in power and grace. It's a quote from Rick Phillips, the pastor, theologian, ex-tank commander. But Saul isn't quite finished with what I think really is his honeymoon period. The very first thing that happened, and then there's no more honeymoon. After this, it's all downhill at the beginning of his reign as king. In verse 12, the people are literally calling for the heads of who? Those worthless fellows at the end of chapter 10 who were deriding him and saying, how's this guy going to reign? How, he's gonna, how is he going to save us? And he just did through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says the greatest thing he ever says in the Bible. Verse 13, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul actually reminded the people that it was not him, but the Lord who had saved them from Nahash. And that's worth exalting in right there. The wise response that this was, set the stage for what happens next and brings the people back together. Remember, that was mission number one. And we've already just seen now in verse 13 the high point of Saul's life and reign. This is it. His first act. And that's sad. In verses 14 and 15, we see the renewal of the kingdom. Samuel immediately seizes upon this renewed hope about Saul in the areas of godliness and faith. And he says, come. Let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now what's going on here? What does renew the kingdom mean? Had there been a kingdom before? Now this was the first time there was a king. But it's called a kingdom So we've got to figure out what this is, really. If we hear the word renew, we realize that that implies that there had been some degree of deterioration that had occurred amongst God's people, his kingdom. At least as what's seen on the earth through these people. And the real question then is, whose kingdom was to be renewed, Saul's or the Lord's? Or a little both, or both. Now, of course, Saul is, says, quote, made king here. But notice what's emphasized, that he is made king by the people before the Lord. So, back in chapter 10, verse 1, he was privately anointed by 
Samuel. And then later in chapter 10, he was publicly proclaimed to be king. Remember, even though he was hiding in the baggage. And now, third, he's officially been installed, or he's going to be right here. He's made king. So you have privately, publicly, and then officially installed. But the important thing, he is made king by the people before the Lord. So what Samuel is doing is leading the people to renew something. What is it? Their fidelity, their allegiance to the Lord. And that's what's going on. Their allegiance to God's sovereign rule under this king. Well, how would they do this? Well, we don't see any specific details here in the text about how this, you know, the details of what actually happened. We don't have a bulletin with the order of this installation service. But there are some clues. And the biggest one and most apparent is that all the people were together. Imagine that. Can you see that? It's very likely that those who had previously despised God's chosen king, who would those guys be? Those worthless fellows that we read about in chapter 10, verse 27, and then we see here in verse 12 again, it's very likely that those people were required to confess allegiance to the Lord here. Very likely. It's also likely that the whole nation then made a renewed commitment to the way God wanted the kingship to function. Remember, we... We saw in Deuteronomy that God had laid that out, what the king was supposed to do, and then Samuel had explained it earlier. There had to be some way for all these people to together renew that commitment and say, yeah, we we got this. We, We understand it, and we will help keep this going. And I think we need to stop just a second right there and just go, huh, We are all so individualistic that anything that speaks of corporate doing anything, we immediately get a stiff neck. And we need to think about that because that's probably not a very good immediate response. And then we see, I don't know whether you noticed this or not, but when we read where they went to have this installation... The city is mentioned several times. Gilgal. And the question is, why? Why is this place mentioned? Why did all the battle, all those soldiers, why did they go from here to here? Why was this the place where they had this installation service? This is called time to really try to answer this question on your own. 
You will not be required to raise your hand in just a minute if you got it wrong or if you got it right. This place had a very special <coughs> place in Israel's history. Let's explain this. It was the town that was near where the people had finally crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land at the end of the 40-year Exodus period. And the time they were crossing, and from the spring for months after that, through the harvest time, the Jordan was in flood stage, which means it was impossible to cross. So think, after 40 years of wilderness wandering in the Exodus, marked by rebellion and disobedience over and over again, they finally think they're ready to cross into the promised land. Moses had died. Joshua was bringing them across. But they can't. But they did. God stopped the water and made it rise up in a heap very far away, and the people passed over on dry ground. Let me read this really fast. This is so encouraging. Joshua, chapter 3, verses 7 through 17, and then a little bit in chapter 4. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests to bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gerashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, all the ites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you in the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. That was at Gilgal. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. 
And there was a lot of people. Chapter 4, verse, starting at verse 19. The people come out, came out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Because the boys look at those little stones and they go, where's some water so I can throw them? Except these were pretty big. Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. See how all this connects? which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. What a lesson. What do you think about Samuel's idea to do this at Gilgal? Sounds almost inspired to me. Again, they were pointing to their past. Their past which was completely dependent upon Lord God Almighty delivering them. First from slavery in Egypt. And then 40 years of running around in the wilderness disobeying. A whole new generation rises up. And he does Practically the same thing through an overflowing flooded river for hundreds of thousands of people to go across on dry ground. And they took stones out of the middle of the river and they took them and they built 12 probably pretty big ones that they could carry, but they were probably pretty big and so that they would be there as a testimony to what? To God's mighty, powerful work in taking care of them and delivering them. That's the lesson. What an incredible lesson. Now, we have a question. Do you think the people gathered at Gilgal to officially install Saul as their new king understood the significance of why they were doing this at Gilgal? I'm sure it was made known. As they remembered the story of what God had done in delivering them from slavery in Egypt and crossing that Red Sea and connecting that with the deliverance to the that deliverance to the demonstration of God's mighty hand and their crossing the Jordan River, they're right there at Gilgal. Because what was ahead? Trusting God with the conquering of all those people in the land that God had promised and was giving them. So, would they now, now, at Gilgal, enter into this new era of living under a human king with renewed fidelity and allegiance? 
Would they remember God's deliverance from the terror of Nahash? Would they remember that their true king was God Almighty as they lived under a human king? Do we? Do we? Do you? one of the main reasons he gave us this book so that we can rehearse what he has done because we face similar things Christians have faced horrid things and we may face even more will we remember his faithfulness and his mighty power do we really trust him to work through our circumstances. See, this, this chapter, the Old Testament does this over and over and over and over and over again to remind us because we forget so quickly. This is encouraging. <coughs> At least it should be. This passage in so many ways is the Old Testament version of what God calls us to in Christ Jesus the Lord. But seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do we understand that no matter what our circumstances may be in this life, that on the spiritual plane, God's people are always to be on a war footing. We are in a spiritual battle. A lot of us are upset with current events because our lifestyles may be in danger. That is not the real problem. It never has been to Christians And we must deal with this, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how hard it is. Paul writes in Ephesians 6. Now let me read this one verse and see if you think about it differently after this story from 1 Samuel. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And now remember that Nahash is a symbol of the power of sin. The men of Jabesh almost gave in and capitulated to the power of sin. Got that? The hard terms of giving in to the power of sin are very much like what Jabesh Gilead faced. Shame, servitude, injury, blindness, which would render them unfit to fight in God's causes. And that's what giving in to sin does to us. It makes us unfit to fight Because we've already given in. 
So we're blind to things going on behind the scene. Will we take to heart the warnings here? Will we? Will churches take to heart these warnings? We must beware of conducting ourselves according. There's only one way to say this. Evangelical churches, all churches really in the West, have literally been attacked and taken over by subterfuge according to a business plan. We must beware of conducting ourselves according to some business plan instead of according to what Scripture calls spiritual warfare, which is what we read in Scripture. Now, I found one commentator who describes this so well, and it's so short, that it will hit each and every one of us. One commentator describes the dangerous situation of today's church this way. Going to do battle is not how we like to think of our evangelistic efforts. In many ways, the business world has replaced the battlefield as a source of categories for thinking about this work. Gospel work is then not a war, but commerce. We go out to sell a product, not fight a battle. We are marketers, not soldiers. We have merchandise, not weapons. We face potential customers, not an enemy. We are out to expand our market share and increase our customer base, not to capture, defeat, and destroy a foe. The language of war, weapons, and battle is too extreme for the way we think about evangelism as just one part of our call as a church. We are more like advertisers than fighters. What do you think? I'm taking for granted that all of you do not hear this and think we're talking about the extremists who are ready to blow up everything in our country in the name of God, some God. Okay, that's that's not what this is getting at. This is realizing that our life is about so much more than what we're busy with most of the time. To understand that people whose hearts are enslaved by sin are in a desperate situation with no hope and they may resort to every means possible not to bow down to the Lord. And we cannot make people do that by force, but by using spiritual weapons. The sword. The attitude of Christ in the sword through our lives and our hearts 
of faithfulness, of love for one another, of being willing to give up to express that. So one, another guy put it this way, there, the Christian life is a life of continual repentance, always in need of renewing its allegiance to the rule of the Lord God Almighty. We're not at a campfire back when you were in elementary school, and we're not throwing pine cones into the fire saying we're going to you know, do this and that to God here. and you know, It lasts about three hours until the next morning, and then you completely forget about it. What we're talking about here is what Israel faced. Will I align my heart to God and his word? And will we as a people not just say it, but keep figuring out in humble prayer and obedience how to demonstrate that to a world that knows nothing about what we're talking about? So instead of all these people on the news saying, I wish people just praying for it is not going to accomplish anything, they'd be able to say, well, I know some Christians who not only pray, but they demonstrate a love to one another that I've never seen before in my whole life, and they demonstrate it to people who do not know the God that they worship and serve. And it's remarkable in fact, they're even willing to, and you fill in the blanks down through church history. That's what this passage is really about. The power of God through his people to be different. And Israel never wanted to be different unless they could lord it over everybody else around them. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you use your Old Testament to make um, all the doctrine and truth just come alive. And thank you for your spirit that goes and applies this directly to our hearts and minds. And, oh, Lord, we pray that you would change us from the inside out and we repent of our and confess of our just lameness and just neutral attitudes and just, well, I'll think about you, you know, this time or that time, but I don't want to have to deal with you any other time. And God, we know that is so sinful, that you are a blessed redeemer and that you just you deserve all of us, all of each part of us, our, our mind, our strength, our hearts, our love. And we pray that you would equip us as, a, as individuals and as a church to continue to demonstrate more and more and more of faithfulness to you that you can use to bring people to yourself through the proclamation of your gospel to the world that we live in. Give us wisdom. Protect us. Help us talk about and pray about and plan about and take to you about the things that are really important. Help us see through the things that are shallow and worthless. Oh God, we thank you for your word. And we pray in the precious name of your Savior, your Son, our Savior. 
Amen. Let's stand for our benediction. I think it's time for the grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And we mean that. Amen. You're dismissed.